really being able to empower a new generation of creators. And so having that global platform that's in that space, I think empowering that generation is something that's super exciting. That's Dale Brett, the co-founder of Flow, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Dale Brett and Ronnie Adam co-founded Flow with the dream to help software engineers build applications 20 times faster. The AFR recently described Flow as the Canva for engineers. In today's episode, Dell will share how they arrived at Flow's unique insight, how the team is finding product market fit in 2021, what lessons he's learned from building three companies that have employed hundreds of people over time, and so much more. I also can't wait for you all to hear from Tom Humphrey, a principal at Blackbird. He's a company builder at heart, having done so on multiple occasions before. He'll break down why he fell in love with Flow, his go-to-market lessons when building a category-defining business, and the challenges ahead that Flow will need to overcome to become the Canva for engineers. Without further ado, here's Dale Brett. We often believe that to arrive at a breakthrough insight, founders who've experienced the problem firsthand, often uniquely placed to A, discover the insight and B, build the company to solve it. So from what I've stalked from your background, (laughs) I found that especially true with you. Can you sort of rewind back to pre-flow and and share the key experience or experiences that led you to start the business? Yeah, for sure. And thanks so much. Uh, Great to be here. So I guess the idea came from the last company that, that I'd built where we had a team of about a hundred in product and engineering. And it's very common, especially today, it's really hard to find good engineering talent. And when you have a team full of engineers, everyone has their own coding standards. It's quite complex to build products when you're working across multiple teams. Mm. And then we were also working very closely with Microsoft to launch a new developer tool. And basically what that asked us is that we needed to move our entire backend over to this new platform. And for us, it would take about six months. Uh, and for others, it would take about two years. So that, that's really where we were like, wow, okay. And then, so we thought, what if we could do it a different way? What if we built our whole platform on top of like a set of APIs? And then we could just point it at the, the platform they want us to. And then as they say, hey, here's the next best thing in two years time, which is you know, inevitable to happen. We could just change it and point the APIs at the next backend. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so we thought that's a pretty cool idea. What if we also went further up the stack, up a layer, and we could do that with code as well? Mm. So what if we could abstract away the code? And then if you have like these pre-configured blocks, it's always powered behind the scenes by the latest state-of-the-art technology. And so we thought if, if we could make a way for people to actually build like software applications without having to write code, you know, that would be really cool. Mm. And so that was kind of the origination of the idea. First of all, why, why now? As you just said, 10 years dealing with the problem. And then finally, at the end of last year, you've gone, I've, I've truly had enough. It's time to really <laughs> solve this problem. What was the, the, the catalyst that helped support you to start this business today? Good question. I think that the, the catalyst was just, it just felt right. It just felt like the timing in the market, where we were at, and the problem just didn't feel like it was getting solved. And I guess 
what else started off is when, when we had the idea and drew it down, we talked about it with a few other founders and immediately we found that people were very interested in what we were, what we were thinking of. And the problem of solving software engineering and democratizing software engineering, it's a global problem facing pretty much every company today. How do we, how do we help build more things? How do we enable not just engineers to build quicker, but how do we enable people that are maybe not as stronger engineers or even your citizen developers to be able to build and create? So it's a very, it's a very big problem. And so now the things sort of came together and it just sort of lined up that now is the time that we wanted to solve this problem. Mm. And I mean, even just then you touched on some terms that, that Canva talks to, and it's probably relevant to bring in the AFR article now, which they described you as the Canva for engineers. Why do you think they use that analogy? Great. Yeah. I love that analogy. So I think if you think of flow, it's basically a Lego kit of blocks for modern engineers. And so we have this abstraction layer over the code and developers can assemble together these blocks and then you can build complex applications and you can ship entire products without needing to code. So I think that's very similar to how Canva operates for design, where as you land, you can pick different types of templates and very quickly have something really great without having to spend much time designing it. And so I think that's the similarities in terms of coding. And then on top of that, from a coding perspective, we add all the serverless infrastructure. So when you're building, you don't have to worry about any of the scalability. It's all built into the product. And we've made it completely extensible as well. So you can easily code and create your own blocks, which means engineering teams are not going to hit blocks and limitations within the platform. It really allows them to achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, and then from there, we're able to build up a, a community marketplace. So it's, it's very much an open source community. Here, you've got different types of blocks, like recipes and entire products that you can share. And then there's also a marketplace for third-party integration. So think like your Zapier on steroids. I mean, I'm first of all, obsessed with a few of the things you said there. First of all, I, I, I can't leave without saying how much I, I love Lego and how much I used to love <laughs> Lego and that clarity of thought. And I love the analogy with that. You're, you're supplying imagination to engineers and building that infrastructure to speed up development. And can you give me maybe one or two examples of some early customers and, and how you've made their, their life easier? Yeah, for sure. So I'll go with the first example is a FinTech platform. So basically they're, looking to revamp and rebuild their entire loan, the ruling engine. So the engine that when someone wants to apply for a loan, whether it's like a type of uh, home loan or a buy now, pay later type situation, you need all these different types of data sets coming together to analyze the person and provide a type of score. And so we're looking to build that engine. They're currently building that now in flow as the core, the core heartbeat of that FinTech app. And that's just the beginning. And then from there, you can really build an entire app, the entire platform, all the backend onto flow. So what is the, the key metric for you as a team? What is, what is the North Star that helps guide your decisions? It, there's two parts. There's the actual usage and consumption in the platform. So usage for us is based around requests. So if you've got a FinTech app with all those different data sets, you've got a lot of requests being made, a lot of API calls, and that generates consumption. That for us shows usage of the platform. That's a very good metric. But early on now, we're really in that product market fit stage where we actually want to see that engineers are really loving to use the product and extracting and getting a lot of value out of using it. So we don't just want to be based on the consumption metrics that are, that are happening, but also the ease of use. 
So I think for us, marrying those two metrics together is really, that's kind of our North Star at the moment. And how do you think about building the best product that helps you to achieve product market fit and then scaling to build the category defining product that, that we'll talk about shortly? We're now in that product market fit stage. So like I was saying, we're, we're making sure engineers love using the product and get a lot of value out of it. And once we've sort of been able to break through that, then we're in that go-to-market phase where we're really scaling it. And so how we see building a great product now, it's all about product-led growth and a self-serve product. So a common example is like Slack, where you can sign up on your own, you invite your team and off you go. And so that's really our focus. It's minimal effort for new users to be able to create value. And it's a zero touch acquisition model. So and that, that's really what's expected today. No one wants to sit in line or book in a, a meeting with someone and have to talk to someone in sales for, for an hour uh, mm. and then get a demo. Mm. And so really to build this out and to get this product-led growth model working for you know, global scale, we're looking at our funnel and everyone has a different funnel that's related to their product. There's a lot of similarities, but th- these are the areas how we see it. We see it in terms of acquisition. So how do we get new engineers to find out about us or to hear about us? And then from there, we move them into our onboarding. So how do we get them to that wow moment or that hello world moment where they're able to really quickly build their first feature, link in with an integration or create a data pipeline. And they're also introduced there to our community and our support. Once we've got that, the next part of the funnel is where we focus on the conversion part. So because our pricing is based on consumption, this really does depend if what they're building has traffic and is going to be growing. And so, you know, sometimes if someone's building a small, like we've got a a really great meditation app and they're just in testing. So uh, we know that when they launch publicly, it'll be a great app and we'll start to scale into, you know, a paid customer. But for now, it's in that testing phase. And so it's really, then it's about how do we help them grow that, that piece? Similar to like an AWS or Azure, that's when the consumption starts. So they only pay for what they use. And if they use a small amount, they're probably in our free tier or as, they, as they're growing, then it starts to scale with them. And then finally, we've got that expansion metric. So looking at once they've built something and it's been successful, how do they keep building more and more functionality in flow? And so one of the great things that we see now and one of the metrics that's really exciting for us is that engineers today in the platform spend around four to five hours a day in flow, which that's a, that's a, it's a great metric to see how people are building things. That was, that was incredible. I mean, from a, from a part two piece of how do we scale, how do we go to market, how do we build a product-led growth company, rewinding it back to your first one or two customers, you have to do things oftentimes that, that don't scale to that effect as you build the value that you want to see. How did you acquire your, your first few customers? 100%. And we, we really live by that. It's do things that don't scale. And we kind of have to remind ourselves that quite often because you do end up doing the things that don't scale. Our first customers were pretty fortunate. We have a, a great network of you know, friends we've built up that are founders, CTOs, engineers, and also through our investors. So we have a great network of friendlies that we could uh, invite into the platform and start testing and using the product with them. And that's where we started to you know, really quickly get traction and get feedback from them. Mm-hmm. And so it was all about those networks and those connections to, to get those people into the platform. And that's where we sort of found out what we needed to do from there. Let's... Go a step further there. What was your relationship like with those customers? How willing were they to work with you guys and help you build the product that that 
gets the value that they want to see? And, and what were those early conversations even like? I think those are the earliest conversations was a slide deck. And so pitching the vision and getting them really excited. There's, there's always great excitement with people and you, you call on your friendships to be like, hey, you guys, I really want to show you something. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change the way you build software. And we're going to help you ship and release products rapidly for your customers. So it's kind of like a, it's a no brainer that anyone's pretty excited to try. From there, when we built out that first pilot, that MVP that actually worked, and then we got the engineers in, surprisingly, we actually had some good feedback. And while they, they would always wear a new, a new product, so you'd find definitely some bugs or maybe there's some features they want to do and we need to show them how to do a workaround. Even we didn't have tech docs at the beginning, so there was no documentation. So documentation was jumping on a call with them and explaining to them how to do things. But we've been able to now rapidly learn with them. We've built out a great developer documentation section and how-tos. And so I think it's evolved very quickly over the last few months. And now we're in a place where onboarding a customer is much easier. And we're starting to, we're still doing things that don't scale. We'll still meet with them. We'll still talk about some cool ideas and workshop some ideas with them and really help them build. But we're really shifting away from that, opening up that self-serve model. And how long is, well, for you in this case, how long has that process of learning and iteration been before you've started to see signs that we're, we're getting to a point where we can do less things that don't scale and start thinking about more things that can? I think if we look at, if we look at some concrete numbers, probably around the time when we have 20 to 30 good customer businesses being built on Flow or using Flow and those engineering teams really starting to get a lot of value out of it and the metrics are trending upwards without much churn without any blocks, I think we'll know then around that time that it's really time to let's pour some, some gas on the fire now and let's really accelerate this and let's start to move into all of the scalability things that we need to now achieve in our go-to-market. Mm. So I think looking at that number, it's 20 to 30 engineers or 20 to 30 brands or companies really building successfully in flow. Mm. And I want to fast forward to 10 years away from now. Where do, where do you see flow in 10 years time and, and, what change will flow have on the world? Awesome question. So I think in 10 years time, if you're looking to build a product or a feature, that's not something simple like e-commerce or a blog or something like that. You're, you're building it on flow. And we see there's a, a thriving global community, uh, an open source community where people are able to share things that are built. So it's very quickly to put together these building blocks of you know very complex things and really being able to empower a new generation of creators. And so having that global platform that's in that space, I think empowering that generation is something that's super exciting. It's super mind-blowing to think about. It. I can't remember where I read this or what book it was from, but I remember he, like sort of reading like the best engineer is like 2000 times more productive than mid, uh, a mid-level engineer or a mid-performer. I'm just sort of imagining a world where like, everyone gets a head start. Everyone's 20 times faster than people who don't have flow and what that means to create a special community for people who are just excited to say, I'm just like, I'm just supercharged effectively. Have you seen <laughs> signs like this and, and people are talking about this in the market? Yeah, very much. I think you're spot on with when you do find that, that one engineer that can, they can, they work at the power of 10 or 20 engineers, which is very, which is, it's really about what we're creating here. Good engineers, they're a rare breed. 
And what we're doing is we're giving superpowers to all engineers and helping to democratize that superpower. So you've got like your juniors all the way through to like your seniors being able to really amplify their skill sets with a platform like this. And that's, that's really what we're seeing now in the market. It's mm -hmm. the tools are now being made readily available to be able to help raise the bar of what you got this junior engineer. We've got a, a bunch of engineers that have come out of uni and they're able to produce code at a very, very senior level because now they're really configuring the blocks. They're passionate to learn these new things like flow and they're able to do some really cool things, which has been really exciting. So it's definitely something that's out there in the market now where you're starting to see these trends of this new modern engineer being able to really produce and mix it up with the best of them. In, in those trends, one of them is develop sort of dev acceleration as a service and, and you're definitely spearheading effectively a new category. What is that in a bit more detail and how do you see yourself playing in that? Yeah, so dev acceleration was something that we came up with as, as part of a category that we're looking to create. I mean, low code, it's such a transformative technology, but we didn't just want to call it low code or no code because it's really, it goes beyond that where we're helping everyone participate in the creation of value. And so currently now it's like, it's very limited to the elite few who've maybe studied programming, but now people who have ideas and want to build uh, these amazing things, now they actually can. And so, you know, we're, we're lowering the cost of entry and the effort required to build really complex things, really complex companies. And so the next person that has this great idea, you can easily rapidly build the next 10 minute grocery platform or the newest FinTech app. And so that's, that's what it's about. It's accelerating development and accelerating creation. What, why, why do you see the point in even defining the category? What's, what's even the point of that? So to define a category, it's because we couldn't find a place for what we wanted to do. We couldn't find a platform that we were looking for something that could help us do what we're trying to achieve here. And we couldn't find it. And so we thought, uh, what if we created the category and with low code and no code amongst engineers it's actually it's it's the reputation of the word low code it's kind of seen as almost a dirty word it's not yeah, a really you know, en engineers kind of scoff at low code pretty quickly and so yep. we thought let's that's not what we're trying to achieve here we're not trying to displace them we're not we're trying to empower them and it helps for them to remove some of the boring things and the tedious boilerplate stuff they don't like doing let them focus on the real problem solving and the core aspects of their role. That's it's that higher level of abstraction, solving problems, creating complex things. And that's what they love to do. So we thought what it's, we would like to create that space, create that category and encourage others to, you know, do the same. And so we thought let's, let's start the category now and let's build it. Has it been challenging to, to sort of define the first set of products that you were going to build given that there are so many problems that you could actually tackle? At first, we, we saw there was a lot to solve. And this is a, it's a massive problem to take on is software engineering and the way that things are built. But once we, once we started to refine what we wanted to achieve, I think now we're very laser focused on, we want to be the very best backend platform on the market. And so for us, that laser focus on making sure we're the best at that before taking on anything new, I think that's really helped us a lot. Uh, and so there's so many interesting areas that pop up on a day-to-day -day basis of like, we could do this, we could look at these front-end frameworks and link it in here. There's the, the opportunity is just massive. And speaking with a lot of our customers as well, there is a strong opportunity for so many different areas to be solved. 
But for now, we want to keep our laser focused, our laser focus and be absolutely the best in our category. And then from there, we'll be able to add more components, add more product lines to what we offer and be able to really achieve that full stack offering in the space. Playbook and blueprint are often dirty words used at Blackbird. And we often try to find original thought and people doing things differently. We've got a question, which is, which is the, what's the blueprint for building a, the, a cliche of a, a category defining product, or at least what have you learned from your experience that is helping to inform your decisions to create that company? Very good question. I'm not sure there's a, there's one right answer, but I would happy to share from our experience in creating a category previously. I think the hardest thing about creating a category is not only do you have to market your product and the problem you're solving and the value created, but also market the category at the same time. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest complexity with it is we have to market what is dev acceleration and why does, why do you need it? And we really believe that every team in the future will have a dev acceleration team or platform like a flow to help accelerate what they're building, to be able to work with engineers from all different coding disciplines, because that no longer is, is a requirement when using a dev acceleration platform. So I guess the parts that are, we've learned from is that we need to do a good job of, first of all, marketing ourselves, which we're always improving on and hoping, hoping to tell that better story of how we can, you know, have engineers find us and use us and know what to use us for, but then also, yeah, the category itself. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's no real set playbook because it's, but there's a lot of great things that you can do in building the category, focusing heavily on things like the community. I think being community led is a very strong element in what we're building today. And so having a community of creators that are sharing components, recipes, products, uh, and having that open source component that can really help drive and create the category. So I'd say um, there's lots of different blueprints and uh, lots of different things out there, but for us, it's all about making fast decisions, trial and error, and doing what we, doing what we think is right to build the company. And then hopefully if we do a good job at it, it creates the category. How are you making it really easy for people in your community to share um, some of those recipes and the, the parts of the product that they, that they love? So that, that's the fun part of what we're working on in the product now. So if you've created, like, let's say a reward platform, which we built one for a conference we talked at in, in 30 minutes, all we have to do is very quickly, we, we create, create it as a marketplace recipe. You wrap it up, call it Mason's Rewards and you can publish it to our marketplace. So then eventually it's easy now for others to come and discover that and say, hey, I actually wanna build a gamification engine for my product. Uh, And then I can search that up. I can find, hey, there's Mason's Rewards. You can see exactly how it's built, how the levels work. I can install it to my workspace and then I can customize it for what I wanna do. Mm -hmm. So as people are building up these libraries of really cool things like teams themselves, can build and create their own private components that just their team use and it helps them to do things their way. And then if you've got some great stuff you wanna share in the open community, you can just publish it. And so that's something we're currently working on now. And that's, that's a super exciting way to be able to share and you know share and democratize a lot of what's being built. What do you think's motivating the transparency and willingness to share? For people like Mason's Rewards, what motivated me to share all my, all my code and, and how it works to, to others? 
I think there's probably two parts to it and everyone sort of will see it differently, I guess. For one part, you may just want to be helping others and you think I've been able to create this really great thing. I'd love to help others and share what I've built. And then the other part is also you get credit for it as well. So you've now shared Mason's rewards. It's being picked up and used in some, in some other major companies. Rewards. <laughs> Mason's rewards. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a vibe. So yeah, I think you get to have that credit and in the community, you'll be able to start seeing certain contributors that have maybe published all these different types of products, components, recipes, and that builds themselves up as well as a thought leader. And they get to, in the future, there's potential monetization as well, where the more people are using their products, potentially they can charge for it. So there's all different parts of the community and why people would want to contribute. Yeah, I think it's just really interesting how, how founders think about building that feedback loop and what is the input driving someone to share something and then how do you capture that and, and keep it breathing to scale. And sort of in similar gears, you talked about how you've already built a category. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in building Willow that's relevant to building Flow? Yeah, very cool. There was, I think, you know, the, the Willow journey was one of the best experiences of my life. We went from two of us, three of us creating a Slack channel at the very beginning to a few hundred people around the world. And that, that hyper growth was, was pretty crazy to go through. And you learn, you learn a lot. I think there's a few big things that we were able to take away that we apply today. I think one of them, it's about making decisions. So being able to make fast decisions and also empowering your team and backing them in their decisions. Bezos talks about, you've got the one-way door and the two-way doors. And we take that very seriously in that the one-way door, once you make a decision, you really can't go back from that decision. Oh, nice. so like, like firing someone, for example. Yeah. Uh, and then, so we really take our time on those decisions to really understand the implications. What is the data to support the direction we want to go? And then with your two-way doors, it might be a bit easier. If you make the wrong mistake, you can come back. And so being able to make decisions very quickly in that regard, and I think building a culture of, great, of making good decisions, that's really what we've been able to learn and backing each other. I know whenever I have to make a tough decision and my co-founder's right there with me, even if we had different views, once we make a decision, we agree and we commit together and we know we're always there to make sure it's successful. And so I think that's a, that's a, that's a big one for us. Because really, like we see companies as just making good decisions. And if you make enough good decisions consistently, you'll be successful. Mm. I think there's a couple others if you... <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear them. Two others, I think. Um, mainly, I think focus. So doing something and doing it very well and being the best at that thing first before tackling other things. And so I think that's something now when, when there's a lot of excitement, a lot of customers asking you for things, you can go, you can really spread yourselves too thin very quickly. And so I think being able to say no to new ideas and new features that customers are demanding, because you're really focused on doing that one thing really well, that's probably the hardest thing that any team will have to go through because you can, you've got a bunch of customers asking for something and it's really hard to say no. But I think if you stick to your focus and be really great at what you do, the time will come when you can then branch out a bit more and accelerate how many things you do take on. And then the final thing, I guess, would be empowerment. So being able to empower your leaders to take ownership uh, and to make, again, back to the decisions, to make decisions and back them, even if maybe you, you, you might have a different way of doing things, being able to back them in their way and then helping them become successful and growing them as leaders. Mm. I've got a question under each of those um, three ideas. 
it's sometimes hard to know at the time when it is a one-way door, unless you have a prepared mind going into something that you've seen before, like firing a person that this is very clearly a one-way door, but building, deciding to take the company in one direction in subtle ways might not be so obvious at the time, but in hindsight, you might go, okay, that was, that was definitely a one-way door. Like we're stoked it worked <laughs> okay, out, but yeah. one-way door. So I'm just curious how, how, how regular you think you're making these decisions. I feel like we come across one-way doors very often. And then one of our techniques, I guess, is more instinctual is that we try and we try and figure out a way that the one-way door, can, how do we maybe leave a little window open or something yeah. that if, if it really goes to shit, yeah. <laughs> then how do we recover from it? Or what will be the process we do after should things not go so well? And I think just having an idea in our minds that, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not going to be a, a complete breaking decision that there is always something that we can do. I think having those those ideas in the back of our mind, at least covering it a bit, you feel a bit more relaxed about some of those one-way doors. But I think we go through it often, whether it's hires, fires, fundraising, there's so many different things and product lines, customers saying no, there's a lot of one-way doors and it can be, it can be scary. But I think once you, once you start to build up a good rhythm of it, we, we, we look back and reflect quite often and we're lucky in that we can, we don't have too many regrets in the decisions we're making. And I think that just helps you keep moving forward. Yes, it's like a it's a one way door, but you're living in a massive neighborhood of houses <laughs> and doors. And, exactly. Uh, on the second part, you spoke about how focus is really key, and customers can often pull you in in different directions that aren't in align with being the best in the world. That the one thing that you're focusing on. How do you deal with or manage those customer relationships when they feel like the 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 house is falling down, but you're you're you still know that you have to be focused in, in building whatever that is. So how do you think about managing that dilemma? Very good question, and one we we have to deal with pretty often. I think it's understanding first of all what is the problem they're facing, and is it something that we should be solving now, or is it something that we should be solving in the future? And if the house is burning i mean we have to pay very close attention to it because we you never want to have a customer where they they feel like the house is burning and we're just ignoring their requests i mean that those are the kind of the ones that probably fit within what you're already solving and probably need to be baked into the product and quickly <laughs> where where it's something that there's a big problem we kind of we iterate what is our north star of our products where we're at today and do we have the flexibility now that we're in a place where we can scale and branch out to that next product offering. And right now we know we're still in that product market fit stage. So being spreading ourselves to a whole new area and then starting from scratch in that area, it's just not something that we think would be a good decision. Mm -hmm. And so from there, we help the customer solve their problem. So whether it's, here's another product that connects really well into what we're doing and you can use the two together that's kind of a solution. So we try and figure out how we're going to solve their problem, make sure that they feel very heard and then offer some sort of mix that will get them to where they want to get to, but doesn't distract our team from what we're trying to achieve. So I think there's no hard and fast rule about it. It's just, we really always want to make sure the customer 
is we solve their problems, whether we can offer it or whether we need to plug something else in. And I think that's also the beauty of having an extensible marketplace is that sometimes people are looking for a front end that they need. And so we can actually help them plug into a bunch of no code front ends really quickly through an integration uh, and they can just use our APIs. So that's one of the ones that we've had is do we build a front end as well? And it's like, no, we actually want to focus on the back end, even though customers are asking for it all the time. It's up to us to go, actually, we're not going to go there yet. We're, we want to be the best at what we do. And let's plug you into this one. And it'll be super easy to ingest our APIs and off you go. And they're pretty happy with that. As long as they get a good, robust outcome and a solution, then it works well for everyone. And then the third one is on empowering people to make um, their decisions and, and owning them. What does that actually look like? That's a hard one. <laughs> being being when you're a perfectionist and you want to see things done the way you want to do them, that's always hard to be able to let go and to trust. And I think that's something you, you work towards and build up over time. I feel like now when we, we've gotten to a place that we know, we know the direction we want to get to. And if you show people, this is how I want you to solve this problem and do it this way, they'll do it that way, but it doesn't really encourage them to grow and to become leaders. And you're always kind of, you're in the detail too much. So mm. I think taking that step back and saying, we want to get from here to there. And that's what it looks like down the end there. How do you want to get us there? And I think letting them come up with their solution and how they want to solve it. And it may be different to something that you want, which is great, actually. That's why you build a team. And that's why you work with people is that they bring different ideas to the table and then you empower them to do it their way. And then you reflect on it at the end and you, you understand how you got to the decisions and you test it and you just sort of keep building. And it's back to that decision-making framework. You, you work out how they made those decisions. You work with them and eventually that, that you're making really quick decisions and they're getting you there. It's, it's completely different to what you thought, but it's a great result in the end. And the team feels empowered and they're able to lead it. And that's how you, yeah, I think that's how you build a great company where you have empowered leaders that can take you forwards. Mm, I love that. And those are some of the lessons from Willow that you want to take into uh, building flow. What are some of the things that you want to avoid or given the fact that you have this lived experience of building a multi-hundred person company, what are the potholes that are around the corner in company building, but you want to avoid? I think it's all, all the reverse of the, of the things I've said. So I think we've sort of framed it all in the positives in terms of the empowerment and decision-making. So I think those are the lessons learned. You, you do learn what not to do in ways. I think how you, we've tried and tested a lot of things and that's the nature of a startup. You try, you test, you fail quickly and you move on to the next thing. So I think in terms of every component in every area, we've tried and tested things that worked and things that didn't work whether it's how to structure a product team, what works for us, what works in how we structure our engineering teams and how things didn't work. I remember a funny story about we were hiring some product managers very early on and we hired three product managers that all started on the same day and it was the first time we were growing the product team. So I'd, I'd recommend against that because you know <laughs> to, to bring in three new product managers on one day and then have to be responsible for them and it creates a bit of a competitive environment so potentially spreading out your hires was a good lesson to learn there and so I think there's all those little lessons that sort of combine together and sort of just frame how you do things and so yeah I think it's great to be able to say we've tried this 
it didn't work there. Let's try something new or it worked there, but maybe it doesn't work here. So I think it all builds into your decision-making framework of how you understand things and the data you apply to making a, a decision. Mm. I mean, the, the competitive framework is a really interesting one and it's, it's hard to do given when companies are scaling so quickly and you're hiring so many people, how do you sort of set up to absorb that competitiveness in a, in a healthy way? Yeah, I think we, we learned a lot in the hyperscaling component of that, hiring a lot of people. And so for now, we're focused on making a very lean team. And that's one of the differences is we want to really have a very lean team to grow a very big company, but not, not have to not have bums on seats. So I think for us taking our time to really find the right people that believe in what we're doing and looking for that top 1% of talent that really raised the bar for the team. We're focusing on that heavily and that, that slower build of the team, we think we can go very quickly in that regard. Like you were saying before about that one engineer that is the same as 10 or 20. Um, that's the type of team we're building. So that's, I think, a different way we're trying to scale now is how can we do that in the most lean and effective way? to grow at scale. And I've no doubt as things go, we'll, we'll need to hit a different level of support and customer success and all these functions we're going to need to build very quickly. But I think it's just about having a, a great culture, good culture of leadership, having the right leaders in place to help build out the functions and really working with people that you trust and that you, you really, you're all rowing in the same direction. You all have the same mission, the same vision. I think that helps a lot. Mm. And as you look at the next 12 months from what you can share, where do you see flow? So we see ourselves launching our complete self-serve product. We hope that's going to be in the next few months as well. So completely self-serve engineers from around the world can sign up, easily get a very quick time to value. We see the community really starting to take off where you've got components, recipes, all different interesting types of products and things you can stitch together and build. And then we also were looking to what most startups really want to achieve in that first 12 months is getting great logos, they call it. So having those great logos of customer case studies of teams that have been able to produce really cool things and show the power of what you can build on Flow and building up that social proof. Um, we've got some great customers now, so hopefully we'll be able to share those logos as we go. So I think that's the next 12 months and then building out the team a bit more. So, you know, I think for us, Having great support for engineers is super important. So that's the community, that's our documentation, that's our, our live chat with any, if someone has a problem, we want to be able to get back to them within a few minutes, at least telling them we've heard them. And then if it takes more time to figure out what we need to do to fix it. But yeah, I think building out that great support, customer success and a full self-serve model to help build out the community as well. I love that. I'm ex so excited to see you kick kick some goals over the next 12 months and I can't wait to get you back on sometime in the future so we can chat again thanks so much for joining me on Wild Hearts awesome thanks so much Mason now that we've heard from Dale we're going to get an investor's perspective by speaking with Tom Humphrey a principal of Blackbird to hear why he's fallen in love with Flo welcome to Wild Hearts this is your very first time with us I'm stoked to have you I'm stoked to be here. To be honest, I've just been waiting for the call up and so I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I very much doubt that, but what an incredible nine months or so you've had. How have you found, especially coming from the US and venture investing over there to 
Australia? Yeah, look, it's it's been really awesome to be back. I just for some context, I I left uh, Australia in 2011 and went to the US and just returned in February of this year. I feel like I timed it really well for the ecosystem perspective, not so great from a lockdown perspective. I kind of yeah. came out of a lockdown and <laughs> walked straight into another one. So I've been in lockdown for about a year and a half now. But yeah, like I left Australia in 2011. I, I was involved in the startup ecosystem at that point. I'd, I'd been working uh, for a startup. We gotten venture capital from two two funds. And it was really interesting, I think, just coming back now 10 years later, just to see how much um, the ecosystem has come in that time. And, you know, I've tried to keep in touch with the ecosystem, but, you know, from afar, you can only do so much. And it's just amazing mm. just in the sense that in 2011 there was wasn't much in the in the way of tech success success stories but you look at today we've got the canvas the lessons the afterpays of the world there there wasn't so much in the way of venture capital funding there was no blackbird or other, these other funds that you see in the market today there was limited even culture around the ecosystem i feel like when i would talk to friends on weekends and they're like what do you do i'm just like work for a startup they didn't quite know what that meant but, you know like and here we are today like we've come so far like i, I read a tech a tech council report the other day there's 860,000 aussies today are now um working in the tech industry and that's meant to grow to a million by 2025 and you know 2018 2019 there was about a billion dollars us invested into aussie startups and you know just last month we had a billion dollars invested in one week which is just blows my just mind <laughs> it's wild yeah and so you know it's just really amazing just to kind of answer your question just to kind of reflect on the Aussie ecosystem just just to see how far we've come in 10 years to get to where we are today and just thinking through well what are we going to look like in 10 years from now and that's just like a really exciting you know just to be coming back and joining this ecosystem at this time so what do you think has changed what why do you think there's so many more people trying to start companies versus now versus 10 years ago yeah, I mean, I think that that's a general thematic around the world. Like, you know, if you look in the at the US, which was already like had an ecosystem, which was quite strong back in 2011, you know, it's come a long way since then as well. You know, I think that the it's now easy, more easier than ever before to set up a company, the opportunity in terms of you know, how the ambition for, for doing a startup is, is so much greater than it ever was before. Like some of these outcomes, like just the fact that Afterpay can kind of have an exit for you know thirty nine billion dollars, or the the Canva can be you know valued at fifty five billion dollars. Like these these are just huge numbers, and so like it's really fascinating just to see you know you know how much you can achieve you know in setting up a company today. But I think like very specifically for Australia, there's been a couple of other things which I think are playing very uniquely into the ecosystem here. I mean, we're you know first and foremost we've got a relatively stable country like economically and socially we're very close to asia which has been seeing some really phenomenal growth and so, so that strategic position you've got a very strong educated talent pool here you know really strong sort of like immigrant population that's bringing in more talent to our ecosystem as well and i think like you know just as, as you know covid has just turned the heat up on this idea of remote work and the fact that you can really build a company from anywhere and i think you know building a startup maybe 10 20 years ago it would have been really difficult to break down some of those territorial or global barriers but you look at today and you've got this concept of product-led growth and oh like I don't actually have to be in the U.S. to sell to U.S. Com companies or you know I can actually kind of build a company which can actually service global companies I can accept international payments and different currencies now like you know all these things make that fluidity of building a company in a country like Australia a lot easier mm -hmm. whilst accessing some of those other markets so I think that's like a you know a big factor there. 100% that virtuous cycle 
of success, breeding more success and watching that compound is, has been incredible. Let's talk about flow. Why do you love them? What do I love flow? I mean, there's so much to, um, so much to love that. I mean, I think I'd, I'd be imprudent not to start with Dale and Rani, such a special founding team. You know, I first met them back, I want to say March or April this, it must be March this year. It was pretty clear from our first encounter that they were a pretty special founding set. And we talk a lot at Blackbird about this concept of founders doing their life's work. And I think that that concept can be easier to say than to sometimes describe But Just to kind of give you some of the points of reference in this situation with these founders that leads me to believe that they're doing their life's work. First, these guys had been working for years together. This was actually their third startup. Um, they previously worked on a startup called Tapify. And in doing Tapify, they actually kind of recognized another opportunity, which led them on to, 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 to working on another startup called Willow. And then it was kind of out of like that Willow opportunity that led them to this other opportunity to do Flow. And so these guys have been working together for many, many years. And each startup that they had been doing was effectively a stepping stone of ambition that was leading them to the next opportunity. And I think that that's, that was something really exciting to see in these founders. The second thing, which was a, a really awesome element here was just that the, they'd been approaching the problem from a very uh, distinct point of personal experience. As I mentioned, they were building this startup called Willow, which was effectively a, a digital twin platform for real estate. And in building that company, they actually saw the problem which led them to flow. They were building Willow. They had a, a huge bottleneck around the engineering team. Like they would have this product roadmap ahead of them. And, you know, it was just like a case of how quickly they could get through. There was a lot of low value work that the engineering team was having to be directed towards rather than just, you know, doing the really kind of high value customization, because you just have to kind of get through that to, to, to build on the product roadmap. And then they also found it really difficult to switch between different tech. You know, they had like one big database and wanted to shift over to a different database and it ended up being this huge, enormous lift. And so there was these very distinct pain points that they saw. And that was kind of like a light bulb moment for them where they were just like, actually like, you know, this is like a really interesting opportunity and a really big problem. Like we should go and, you know, attack that. And, you know, that's where the, the idea for flow came from. And it actually, to feel like that founding story really reminds me of the founding story behind Canva. If you may cast your mind back, like Mel and Cliff were plugging away a high school yearbook a platform called Fusion Books. And it was in building that platform that they saw the opportunity for Canva, which, you know, kind of came out of it and off they went on, on that journey. And I see that analogy really here, like coming from a, a point of personal experience and ambition around the problem. And yeah, and then, you know, I think beyond that, beyond the founders who are awesome, I, I just said the problem itself is just really exciting. Mm. You know, I think we always talk about a blackbird, like looking for problems that are worth caring about. And for me, this is just such an awesome problem to attack. You know, tech companies are the future and most people on your podcast and you and I probably believe that Mason and the number one challenge for tech companies is often the engineering resources they have. And I've definitely experienced that myself and building some of the startups I have, you know, we've been my last startup, we were offshoring and, you know, recruiting out of French engineering schools and building up a French based engineering team of really young graduates, just because that was the only way that we could figure out how to kind of crack this problem of finding our engineering talent. And so if you kind of think about the mission of flow, which is to ultimately help developers to build applications 20 times faster with a really delightful and awesome product user experience like that, if they can achieve that is just such a meaningful and hugely needle moving problem to attack. So that's what's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, on two fronts, their connection to the problem is so deep and unique. And we definitely spoke about that 
in the episode with Dal. So hopefully all the listeners uh, can get that impression. And then on the market, I mean, imagine a world where every single company is 20 times faster than they currently are in building products. I'm sure to your point, Canva would have a field day with all the products that they could build. So it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a magical mission and something everyone at Blackbird for sure gets around. It would be pretty cool if we, you know, the product that we have at Canva today, we had maybe five years ago, just by <laughs> having a product development pretty <laughs> not to put pressure on Canva. What are you, so what are you excited to see over the next 12 months? Yeah, it's been so, um, you know, like it's been incredible just to see how quickly they've moved between starting the company, which only seems like yesterday. I mean, it might've been five, five months ago or so to getting to where they are today. And, you know, they've now just signed up their first customers and they're actually starting to get into the point of um, billing revenue, which is incredibly exciting. And I think the most exciting thing, which is on the near term, is that you know all of the development to date in terms of milestones and progress has been really around product and team, and just watching them, you know, on the team front, bringing on amazing talent and thinking about who they recruit and how they recruit those people, and it's just been it's so exciting just to see like some of the highs they bring on and the quality of that talent, and then on the product front, you know, and and I love this. I still remember like you know Rick is on the board of. Canva and he always talks about the Canva board meetings and he walks in and you spend five minutes like talking about the business update. Yep, here we are, vanity metrics, users, et cetera. And then they spend 95% of the, the board meeting just talking about product, product which has been built, product updates, product roadmap. And I feel like that's exactly what I see with Flow. Like every time we go into a board meeting, it is just all about product. And so the velocity of product has just been so rapid today. And so in terms of your question of like what I'm excited about us over the next 12 months, I'm just the continuous, continued velocity of that product development and just some of the roadmap that they've got coming up is just huge. And I just know that these guys are going to execute on that really fast. And then I'd say the second thing is just really around um, the customer side of things. You know, now that they've got these customers on board, it's so exciting to see the early signals of that customer love. You know, they started off by having a few customers where they were onboarding them training them on how to use the product and the platform and getting them set up. And now it's just kind of like you let the reins go and these customers are actually jumping in and you can see the users and they're spending huge amounts of their day, like hours every day, just using the platform and building applications and then building a second application and then adding more users. And that's just incredibly exciting just to see how that kind of customer level North Star metrics of usage start to develop at the company. The third part, you know, is going to be really exciting just over the next 12 months is just the go to market. I mean, I love talking about go to market and I'm sure we can kind of dig into that, but you're going to say that. And yeah, and you know, like these guys have just got a really exciting go to market and we're kind of, you know, at the early days of just kind of starting to kind of roll out some of those go to market elements. You know, I feel like with the startup life cycle, it's always just about you've got to find that product market fit first and then you kind of turn your attention to go to market and getting go to market fit but these guys are actually already working on that as they as they speak so really really exciting to see that develop well let's let's talk about the go to market and and how you're the the go to market king which by the way is a, it's a, it's an internal joke that we called Tom because of an awesome blog series which I'll make sure I link in uh, the show notes for some of you to read what are you excited about with flows go to market yeah i mean i would 
you know, you can skip the blog series. The TLDR of that is that PLG is great, but, you know, just to save yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag buzz. But, <laughs> but, you know, like there's so much to love about the way that Dale and Rani are thinking about the go-to-market for flow. And I, I often joke with, with Dale that whenever he talks about his go-to-market playbook that he's developing it, I always describe it as it's as if Webflow and Twilio had a baby. But yeah, like with my kind of you know framework around go to market that I talk about or product led growth I talk about in that go to market series, like have this nine lever framework. And I think these guys are pulling on a couple of those levers in really interesting ways that excites me. So one of those elements is just around usage based pricing. So you know I think there's been like this journey of pricing um, that started with Salesforce, where they started with uh, seat-based pricing, so number of users. And then we moved into a world which was uh, SaaS-based pricing and you know, licenses. And that now we're kind of like getting into this world of usage-based pricing. And you know, companies like Twilio, who prices based on API calls, or you've got AWS that prices based on um, compute. And, you know, and that's kind of like what Flow's leaning in on too. And you know, that's just a really exciting kind of model because I think it really makes them work really nicely and naturally with their customers. It gives them customers an entry point onto the platform, which is completely freemium and then allows them, you know, flow to kind of grow with customers as they build these applications, as they grow themselves as companies, because obviously the greater volume of usage with a product is going to drive the actual kind of usage on flow too. So that's kind of like the first thing. And then the other big component of Flow is they're building out this marketplace of modules. So both Flow is kind of building like a base set of modules. So things that you can pick up and run with, like just imagine you're building a, a castle out of Lego and you're just kind of grabbing different Lego pieces and Flow is building a marketplace of Legos. And lo those Lego pieces might be like a Twilio API or maybe an Zero API, or maybe it's actually like a pre-built form or module or sign up user flow. And, you know, but the other kind of thing, which is really kind of cool about what they think, how they think about that is actually letting the actual community and network build that. So if they've got a customer and as they kind of grow, they've got all these customers that start to build these modules themselves and giving them a, a monetization model that makes it sense for them to potentially add those pre-built modules into the flow marketplace. So it's effectively creating, you know, the user generated content of, of if you will, of product development and then i'd say like you know lastly you know around the network community these guys you know as with many kind of products which are targeted at developers like developers are a very i think unique go to market in the sense that the companies that are most successful in selling to developers really lean in on a pool model of sales as opposed to a push what i mean by that it's less about kind of having sales people kind of picking up the phone and calling and trying to force a product on you and it's much more about building an awesome community and getting lots of github stars and having like a really active um, support community and kind of sucking developers into that community as part of your sales strategy. And, you know, Flow's got a really cool um, strategy around how they're doing that. They've already kind of kickstarted off that community. They're, they're leaning in on a partner ecosystem model as well related to that community. So yeah, I really think they're, they're, they're being very smart and methodical about how they're thinking about that go-to-market. Sort of two questions. One is, I saw a pitch the other day and it just had eight or seven different go-to-market channels that it wanted to focus on right at the beginning. Do you think it's a good or a bad decision to spread yourself across many different marketing channels, distribution channels to get your product in the hands of customers? Or do you think founders should be thinking through the lens of let's focus on something first, test it and get some feedback? Yeah, I mean, I think the... 
The first kind of point I'd say in response to that is that, and this is a common pitfall, I think that, you know, there's there's a, a lot of pressure on founders to, to think that they've got to kind of get the go-to-market nailed off the get-go. And, you know, that's definitely not the case. Like, you, you know, there's this journey that you have to go through to, get, to find your product market fit. And that journey should just almost throw go-to-market completely out the window. You do whatever it takes to land your first customers. It doesn't matter whether you have to chase someone down at a bus stop or whether you're kind of doing LinkedIn stalking or whatever, or leaning on friends and family, like whatever it is, just because at the end of the day, like as you're kind of figuring out the product market fit, it's not about like optimizing how you kind of your CAC. It's just about like, I need to get this product in customers' hands. I need to get feedback on it. And so the first point I'd say is just not even thinking about go to market at all. And just don't let that be a distraction in those early days. And then as soon as you do hit that sweet spot of product market fit and there's lots of def definitions of what that sweet spot is and like how do I know if I've got product market fit but you know oftentimes I'll describe it as like it's when you start feeling the pull from customers as opposed to just the push but once you find that then it kind of go okay now we've got to kind of figure out our go-to-market and that's typically when you start staffing up on the go-to-market side okay I need someone in marketing maybe I'm going to hire my first account executive and there's going to be this natural transition from founder selling into okay well now i have to kind of actually figure out a, a non-founder model for selling this product into the market and you know i think inevitably there's going to be a balance of focus versus experimentation that happens at that i think you can definitely go too far in either direction so you can be too focused and you just double down on one strategy and then you're not actually learning at all or you can double down on the other side and you start just doing too many things that you do 100 things really badly rather than five things well and so i think like it's just like really understanding well what resources we have to actually do that experimentation i think the level of experimentation you lean on should be a function of your resources both in terms of cash and you know how you know your staffing ability but i think the really important thing here is to not just be doing experimentation in a vacuum. Like the last thing you want to be doing is doing this experimentation without any reflection on it. You want to be making sure you're setting up the right kind of structures around that. Okay, like I'm going to go and start testing with LinkedIn outreach with sending emails. And I'm also going to do some Facebook marketing and setting up a structure around it. That means like time basing it. Okay, I'm going to spend five grand on this. I'm going to spend five grand on that. I'm going to do it for three months. And then we're going to kind of reflect on that. I'm going to have really strict processes for looking at the data and understanding what works. And I'm going to have a way to kind of really easily compare those. So, okay, like I did it over here. I got, I got 10 people for the cost of hundred bucks. That's $10 CAC. And over here I did that. And I got hundred people for the cost of 10 bucks. Well, I'm going to like double down on that strategy. So I think just making sure you're not just experimenting, but you're being really thoughtful and learning from those experiments too. I love that. And the second question was, there is a tension when you want to create a new category. And as we've spoken about, or at least I spoke to Dale about, he has this tension where he's creating a category and wanting to be the leader in that category. And you need to educate the people in the ecosystem about not only who you are, but also what the category is and how you're thinking about owning that category. For them, have there been any sort of early discussions around educating the market on what the category is and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And the starting point I'd say is that I really love companies when you are approaching the market with a category definition. At my last company, Canopy, we came out there and we were just like trying to do this 
hybrid of you know a video streaming platform but we we're kind of like trying to define a new category of content because at netflix it's all about pure entertainment and then there's this other world of just documentaries and classic film and we we're just like trying to find something in the middle and so we created a new category that we called thoughtful entertainment which was that hybrid model and that actually just just by putting a label to it and owning that label just defined who we were in the market and just it actually just like as soon as we got to the point of just labeling that it actually defined all of our marketing it defined how we talk to customers and just made our lives so much easier just in terms of everything we were doing on the go-to-market you know i've seen it also with another company in our portfolio called forage and you know they're defining another completely new uh, category around recruitment which is like a little bit about education and sits between in between education and recruitment and they're tr- defining that category as the pre-skilling market which before they kind of came along and put a label to that no one really had a word to describe what they were doing. And that's the same here with Flow. So Flow is, is, has come out and they've gone, developer acceleration as a service is what we are trying to do, otherwise known as DAS. And you know, I think that just putting a name to it early and saying, this is what we're trying to do and attaching that category to the vision, which they have, which is awesome, is a really great place to start. Now, you know, they do have a hurdle ahead of them because I think they, you know, it's not just about coming out and, labeling a new category it's also about educating the market around that and one of the challenges that flow has is that it 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 is it does so much it's got such broad application i mean you can really build anything on flow like if you're building a meditation app you can come and build that whole meditation app from bottom to top all on flow if you're an iot company you could come into flow and just use them to kind of build an iot data you know uh, analytics tool just on flow so you know, there's so many different entry points into companies and there's, they can really kind of work with any customer out there. And that is obviously great in the sense that it, it opens up this huge blue ocean market for them, but it's also challenging because with having so many entry points, it's just a question of like, where do you focus? And where, like, especially when you go to market, like how do I focus my messaging and how do I focus my go to market onto which customers? And so Flow is now kind of figuring that out. And like I said before, you know, they're kind of going through this stage of, product market fit stage where it's just like just get the hands in customers and get to the point of customer love and product market at some point they're going to switch gears into that go-to-market fit stage where it really becomes like well okay we need to actually start experimenting on do we kind of go after iot customers do we go after fintech customers do we go after um, some other kind of category consumer versus b2b or whatever that might be and they will they will get to that point but you know that's not just for right now and so i hope that answers your question that definitely does and super interesting one of the hurdles I imagine you might have needed to jump over was the, well, I guess the category of low code, no code solutions in the market. And there was, when, and uh, rightly so is, a huge amount of buzz, which obviously means when there's a huge amount of buzz for us, the bar of excellence has to dramatically increase because most ideas aren't that original and many founders are trying to do the same thing. How do you sort of, get through that buzz and, and what was unique about the way in which Flow pitched uh, their business? Mason, I got to admit, I feel like everything's got buzz right now, whether it's crypto, AI, <laughs> machine learning. So, I mean, if we weren't investing in buzz words, we would not be, we would not be investing at all. But, you know, you're right. I mean, there is a buzz about low code, no code in the market. And I would say like, you know, that's typically, a, 
you know, a good thing. Like, you know, usually buzz happens when there's big opportunity and something worth caring about. The, the first thing I'd say is like the no-code, low-code market is very broad as a category and it's probably broader than most of us think about. Like it spans from, I mean, low-code, no-code effectively sucks in anything which, you know, would normally take some degree of coding to build, but, you know, is modularized in a way that in all of it or part of it, it's pre-built into blocks so that, you know, it takes away some of that coding work. So if you think about, well, what does that cover? Like, you know, you can build websites on WordPress. That's, you know, low code. You can build an e-commerce shop on Shopify and that's low code uh, or no code. You can use Salesforce to do build your CRM and that's low code, no code as well. And so it is a very broad category and those are all massive companies which have been built in these categories, but in very different areas. And so Flow is very specific to one area of this market, which is the developer acceleration platform market. And yes, there's other play players in that you know, market and some of those players have been around for a while, but you know, the way that Flow is approaching this business and how they're thinking about the, the beauty of their product UX, the, 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 how they're thinking about their go-to-market strategy, it's a very different and very beautiful approach to this market that I'm definitely very bought in on. You know, I think like, you know, if a lot of people would have probably said that the web development market was pretty accounted for by Squarespace and WordPress, but then came along Webflow and you know got another big player in that website building market. Nikki always talks about how how much people focused on the competition when Canva came along, and people were talking about how are they going to compete against Crello or these other players. And but it was the beauty of the product and the beauty of the vision that carried Canva through, even though there was competition in the market and even though it wasn't necessarily, you know, and I think that's the same here. And you know, that said, I would say like Flow does have differentiation in how they're thinking about the market opportunity. You know, there's this concept about, do you go after the citizen developer in the market or the sophisticated developer in the market? The citizen developer is like more the no code market. So if Mason and Tom is trying to build a mobile app, well, neither of us have coding ability and so we would need to use a no code solution because we need to use something which is like literally just going to take everything off our plate in terms of having no coding involved at all but if you're a sophisticated developer you might be willing to use something which will get you 80 percent of the way there and then you can kind of just customize a little bit of it with code to get it to the to the last mile i imagine the round was pretty unique given what flow is building can you describe what the dynamics were at that round you know what, it's actually interesting you mentioned that because it was a fairly unique way in the way that the round came together. I remember a few years back, someone in the Bay Area was chatting to, had mentioned to me how they viewed seed investing about being, uh, you know, having a village mentality to seed investing. And, you know, this idea that earlier in a company's life cycle, this kind of pre-seed seed stage, it's about bringing as much kind of like hands on, as many hands on deck, as much support around the founders as possible and that's kind of why we've got accelerators today i mean if you think about an accelerator it's just like let's wrap mm. these companies with as much support a village let's put them in a village around them and in working with dale around this round like what, what a normal round would look like is like the lead investor would put in a term sheet and then you'd wrap up the round in the next month maybe get a few co-investors you know angels to come in but this one is quite different in the sense that it was very clear that, you know, in terms of what Dale is trying to do, he's, you know, building a product for developers in terms of that market and this whole idea, which I was talking to you about before, about how like building a community and having like a pool go-to-market approach in the developer community is really important to success here. It was this idea of like, well, can we bring like, as part of this thinking through this round, like, can we try to bring some of those elements of village thinking 
into this round. And so what we actually did with the round was carved out a substantial chunk of the round and just said, hey, Dale, like, let's close the round you know, in, in three days, but you know, we'll leave this chunk open and you can just take as long as you want, like a year, however long you need to go. And you can use this little pool to go and get strategic angel investors to come in on the round's terms. And they don't have to have that pressure and, of, of coming in in the 30 days. And what that meant for Dale was that he could just take his time and go out and kind of like, as he's building like really meaningful relationships with people, then he can actually be quite selective and thoughtful about how he's done that. And he's, he's just done that. Like, I mean, if you look at some of the angels he's brought in to participate in the flow story, like he's had the founder of one of the founders of Atlassian, he had the VP of engineering of Atlassian, the CTOs of CultureAmp, SailPoint, Webflow, Yelp, like a really amazing um, group of people have come in on that. And, you know, not only is that, you know, so why is that valuable to Dale? Well, a couple of angles, like, you know, one, he's getting, as he's kind of like building the product and going through this product market fit stage, he's getting incredible input from this bench of supporters who are providing kind of feedback on the pricing, the product, how he's thinking about the go-to-market and building the community. He's also kind of got some great customer referrals because he's, you know, got this network of people who are in his tent who are kind of giving him introductions and helping him out. He's got some, you know, effectively kickstarting him on, on some of these kind of points of customer validation because he's got these amazing people who are already starting to use the product as early customer adopters. And so in terms of like him trying to, or him and Ronnie trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve, just by virtue of thinking through that round and how we were doing it and who we brought to the table as part of it has been really effective in terms of kickstarting them on their journey of what they need to achieve. So it was a little unique. And I think it's like a really cool, cool way of thinking about it for this specific example. Have you seen that support come to fruition? Yeah, a hundred percent, you know, to varying degrees. Like, I mean, I feel like the relationship with each of the founders has been, the angels has been really different and the support value add has become in, has come in different examples. So for example, Dale has off, you know, in terms of the CTO Webflow, he's actually off at some point this week or next week presenting at the Webflow conference. And that's just like, what an amazing opportunity for him to be up there on stage presenting at the Webflow annual conference, all about flow. And that's kind of come mm -hmm. through that relationship. And then, you know, another one of the angels he's got, he's on a weekly call and it's all about just like product feedback, like, hey, this is what we built this week. Like, what do you think? Or, and then, you know, other, other angels are kind of providing different feedback, but you know, I just love that. And, you know, I've, I've, you know some of those angels I kind of introduced into the mix. You know, for me as an investor, I just love this concept of having more people around the table. I think at Blackbird, you know, we always talk about our secret source being our community and founders helping founders. And how do we kind of, you know, build that ecosystem and, and provide the moments of serendipity so that, you know, even when we're not involved, like the, the, the ecosystem is supporting itself and creating that, those, those networks of opportunity. And I think this is a great example of that. Like, you know, just pulling together a, a, a great community of people around a village of support around flow to really help them get going. Well, look, thank you very much for your first appearance on Wild Hearts. That was epic. Thank you. I appreciate how you having me. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Wild Hearts. And if you did, we'd be super grateful if you liked, subscribed, left a review and shared it with your friends, especially those who have the startup itch. On another note, nothing is too early at Blackbird and we have a get investment section on our website where you can submit your vision on how your company will change the world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and we will see you soon. Godspeed.